Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Welcome to Grant Memorial on this Palm Sunday. I uh, just want to, uh, you, you ever receive something that you didn't know you needed until you got it? That was kind of what I was feeling as these kids were up here. You know, I, I didn't know, yeah, how much I needed to see the kids of our church worshiping God with their leaves this morning. Pretty awesome. So thank you to the kids. I know they're not there, but um, thanks to the kids for, uh, for reminding us all of the childlike faith that is necessary to follow the one who truly saves. Right? That's what Hosanna means. That word that we just sang that usually we kind of put up on the shelf until next Palm Sunday. That word Hosanna means save now. Right? It's a declaration that means save now or please save us. And we know that in order to come to a place where we can truly cry out to God, we need to humble ourselves in acknowledgement that we cannot save ourselves. Right? As a small child trusts in their parents for literally everything, so must we, in humility, submit all of ourselves to Christ that we would be saved. So thank you to our kids, to our families for reminding us that, of that this morning. Uh, if we haven't met uh, yet, my name is Cam, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grant. And I want to invite you to turn with me this morning in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 6, as we continue to study the life and works of the one to whom we cry out, Hosanna, Jesus of Nazareth. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 45. We're going to read through to verse 52 this morning. Mark 6, 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched were healed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we dig in today, you would boldface uh, some of these words, these concepts, Lord, that the truth of your word would land on our hearts, that we would be different as a result of having encountered your word this morning. Amen. So if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Steve walked us through the miraculous healing of the 5,000, uh, where Jesus uh, didn't feed 5,000, but fed upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. 
And this miraculous account ended with everyone present eating until they were full, followed by the, by the disciples picking up 12 baskets worth of leftovers. And our text today begins in verse 45 with the word immediately. Immediately. So today's text doesn't begin, a, you know, a few weeks after this miraculous feeding we read about last week. It doesn't even begin the next day or even after they've had a good time of fellowship and Bartholomew led them through some campfire songs on his harp. No, the, the moment they had finished eating, Jesus immediately, verse 45, made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. What a strange turn of events. Immediately... Jesus, notice the word here, made his disciples go away. Right? This was not a suggestion. Hey, hey, guys, why don't you go out for a boat ride? It looks nice outside. No, this was a direct order. It, it, was, to be, it was to be obeyed post-haste. But, but why? Why the urgency here? Right? Doesn't this seem like a wonderful miracle that they could have just reveled in for a while? Right? Jesus had just fed thousands of people from nothing. How did an amazing moment suddenly need such a swift exit? Well, I think that answer uh, is found in John's account of this very same event. John 6, 14 to 15 tells us this. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Seems like a good thing to say. But Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Okay, so that's some good insight into what is really going on here. You see, upon seeing this incredible miracle, the people were about to make Jesus their king by force. Now, I don't even know how that happens. Right? What does that even, what does that look like? To, how do you make someone king? Can we just make, you know, Jeff king now? Is that, does it work that way? I don't know how it worked. But whatever it was, Jesus was not up for it. Right? Because these people didn't get it. They didn't understand. You see, those who were trying to make him king were thinking strictly in earthly terms. That somehow Jesus could use, you know, his magic or whatever they thought it was to overthrow Rome and establish an earthly kingdom. That he could make their lives easier. He could put an end to their misery. He could turn the tables and restore the kingdom of Israel to what it once was. But what they didn't get was that Jesus did not come to simply overthrow the Romans by force. He came, as John 16, says, to overcome the world through his death and resurrection. But in their ignorance and confusion, this became quickly a volatile situation that Jesus had to put an end to before the picnic turned into a political revolt. Now, I don't know how you disperse a riled up crowd of 15 to 20,000 people. But Jesus seems to accomplish this by sending his disciples away ASAP, sharing a brief word of dismissal to the crowd and then hiding away. You see, it's much easier to disappear by yourself 
than it is to hide away with a crew of 12 or more. But that's not the only reason Jesus sent his disciples away. What we notice is that his very disciples were likely among those who would have gladly lifted Jesus on their shoulders and carried him out as their new king. Right? The disciples needed to be told to go because they too were likely caught up in this incredible moment and were viewing things through the wrong lenses. It seems that they too didn't quite understand. As James Edwards notes, the disciples are not unsusceptible to the messianic contagion of the crowd. The Greek verb used here suggests that the disciples are reluctant to leave. The apparent sense is that Jesus must expeditiously remove them from the scene in order to persuade the crowd to disperse peaceably and thus avert a revolutionary groundswell. So in the end, uh, the crowd was dispersed. The disciples left in the boat, and Jesus went in another direction. Verse 46, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So Jesus retreats from this crowd and spends some time alone in prayer. Now, this isn't unusual for Jesus. We know Jesus to be one who prayed continually. He was in constant communication with his father. However, there are only three occasions in the Gospels where the Bible explicitly describes Jesus going off to pray. The first occasion was at the beginning of his ministry. We came across it in Mark chapter 1 as he was calling his first disciples and just beginning to publicly heal and cast out demons. And the crowds were starting to to hear and starting to follow. And the, the third occasion is the most obvious one where Jesus goes off to pray right before or on the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, the only other time that Jesus' solitary prayer is directly described is in this text, the second occasion. Now, why this particular instance is recorded and what, what is significant about it specifically, I actually don't know. Perhaps Jesus knows that greater opposition is to come, as we will see as we turn the pages at the hands of the Pharisees and as his fame continues to grow throughout the region. Or perhaps he came to the Lord to combat the temptation that he surely felt as the crowds grew and his praise and adoration towards him increased with 15 or 20,000 people calling for him to lead them as king. See, we don't know exactly, but whatever it was that Jesus was experiencing, he took it to the Father in prayer to align his will to the Father's will and to prepare himself for what was to come. The text picks up a little while later. Verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So Jesus is on land, presumably still praying, and the disciples are in the boat, which is not typically a good recipe in the Gospel of Mark. It seems that whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, they fall into distress of some sort, and this time is no different. The text continues describing the scene for the disciples. 
Right? The wind is against them, and they are straining at the oars. This order to go towards Bethsaida is not turning out to be as easy as Jesus made it seem. There's a, a fierce wind blowing, so strong that, that they couldn't even sail, but had to resort to rowing to try and even move in the right direction. But even that was proving to be difficult. Have you ever tried to row against a significant wind? It's like an exercise in futility, isn't it? I remember that when I worked in BC, I took a group of students out in canoes for the day, which seemed like a good idea at the time, until in the afternoon, uh, when we were trying to return to where we started from, the wind picked up so heavily that nearly all of our students were moving backwards despite their best efforts to move forward, right? Paddling and paddling and paddling with no progress at all. Students were just kind of floating off further and further away from where we needed them to be. And so eventually, myself and a couple of our other leaders started paddling out ourselves to go get them boat by boat and lead them to the shore. And it took every ounce of effort in us for us to even be able to move out and get them. Well, similarly, the disciples were working as hard as they could, but, event, but, but evidently, their work was to no avail, as Jesus, who stayed behind, could still see them. Did you notice that? Jesus could still see them from the shore. How far have you guys gone? Not far enough that people standing on the shore can't see you anymore. You see, while the route that they were traveling to the town of Bethsaida was not a long distance and shouldn't have taken very long, the wind kept them out nearly all night and they remained closer to their origin than their destination. I can't imagine what Jesus was thinking, watching them struggle. But eventually, or we read that he eventually went out to help them. Verse 48. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. Now, before we get to the walking on water part, which is very significant, it's important for us to notice when Jesus went out to them. Our text says, shortly before dawn, or as the original text says, about the fourth watch of the night, or roughly three o'clock in the morning. The the fourth watch of the night was between three and six o'clock a.m. Now, why is this important? Well, when does Jesus notice that they're struggling? In the evening. And when does he actually go and help them? Early in the morning. Or in the middle of the night, depending on how you view three or six o'clock. But think about this. The disciples were struggling, and Jesus let them struggle for hours before he intervened. And even more than that, why were they even out in the water in the first place? Because it's what he told them to do. Right? They were being obedient to Christ. They were doing what Jesus had told them to do, and their obedience brought them into difficulty. This is an important point that we touched on a few weeks ago. Obedience to God comes at a certain cost. Following Jesus can be hard which pushes against the notion that if we are obedient or if we simply have enough faith or trust that life will be a-okay, everything will be hunky-dory for us. 
right? There are some who teach that if you are in the middle of a storm, you must be doing something wrong or you don't have enough faith, but that's just not true. It is the disciples' obedience that put them in the middle of this windstorm. But guess what? It's precisely being in the storm that gives them a glimpse of the mighty power of God. You see, friends, God is not opposed to us facing hardships or letting us struggle for a while. In fact, he uses these very moments to do some of his greatest work. Nearly everything we have read, miraculous that Jesus has done, was necessitated by something not being right. Whoever read of Jesus feeding the crowd who had all brought their own lunch? Right? Or, or Jesus stilling the incredibly calm seas? Or Jesus giving sight to a man who had 20-20 vision? Right? The disciples could never have seen Jesus' authority over the storms unless they lived through one. And friends, there are some things that God teaches us, not when everything is peachy, but when just the opposite is true. As James 1, 2 to 4 encourages us, count it all, what? Joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, we learn, we grow, we become more like Jesus in the storms in the trials, and so God will allow us to walk through some. He will allow us to strain at the oars sometimes. If you feel like you're straining at the oars right now, that does not mean you've done something wrong, and it certainly doesn't mean that God is not aware. He sees he knows and he is ready to draw near. Here in our text, we see that in the midst of the storm, Jesus does eventually come to help. And although it is likely that the disciples may have felt that he had abandoned them, he was on his way to help them. He sees, he knows he's coming. Now this same verse tells us about Jesus' mode of transportation to come help, which is walking on water. If that's not the best mode of transportation, I don't know what is, right? Hey, guys, go sail across the lake. I'll catch up with you later, he says, as he ties up his sandals, right? <laughs> now, just to be sure, the wording here is very, very clear. The text literally means that Jesus walked on top of or on the surface of the water, okay? So any attempts to question the validity of this as some attempt to do, oh, Jesus was just walking on a sandbar, or it just looked like it because they saw him, you know, at the shore. Any attempt like that is not a biblical attempt. The text is clear. Jesus literally walked on the water, you see, that's precisely why we're talking about this 2,000 years later. You see, Mark here 
is letting us know that Jesus did something that only God could do. Remember, that's why Mark is writing this gospel at all. We, we went through this a, a few months ago. Mark is saying to the, the persecuted church in Rome that this man you believe in, who you are suffering for, is no ordinary man. For that matter, he's no ordinary God. Take any other idol made of stone or gold and drop it into the lake. What happens? It sinks. Not so with Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the very Son of God. This man is worth following because this man is God. As we look deeper, this action itself of Jesus walking on the water is making this declaration about who Jesus actually is. If we go to the Old Testament, we read Job 9, 8, says this. It says, God alone treads on the waves of the sea. Right? It is God alone who treads on the waves of the sea. You see, this text in Job 9 exists to basically distinguish between God and humans. Right? It's a list of things that God can do that we couldn't even imagine doing. And it says that God alone can tread on the waves of the sea. And here, Jesus is treading on the waves of the sea. Right? Mark uses the same language reserved for God because Jesus, as Mark is making every effort to have us know, is God. He, he shares this story. He recalls this specific day to prove that Jesus is God because only God could do something like this. And he continues to emphasize this point as we move along. Take a look, verse 48. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Now, you can understand this fear presented here, right? right? If you saw a human being walking on water in the middle of the storm as you were trying to keep your boat afloat, what would you think was happening? You're having a hallucination. Maybe the water already got you. You're seeing a ghost. Right? We, we can't forget that a man walking on water was somehow, you know, less out of the ordinary than it is today if we witness that very thing. People don't walk on water. They don't now, and they didn't then. But God can, and God did. And until they knew who it was, the disciples were terrified, which I think we all would be. Now, an important thing for us to notice here is the curious statement in verse 40, 48. He was about to pass by them. Anybody notice that? That's weird. Right? What does that even mean? Was Jesus walking across the lake hoping they wouldn't notice him? Right? He, he wasn't walking on water. He was tiptoeing on water. Right? Like, was he too tired to help them and he was just trying to slip past like you would try and slip past your landlord if the rent was late or past your boss if you hadn't handed in that report yet? Right? He's, I hope they don't notice me. Splish, 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 splish. Right? Like, is, is that what's happening here? 
Or, or is there something else going on? Is something else meant by this term passing by? One of the ways that you can approach a text in Scripture that you don't quite understand is to ask yourself if this text rings a bell from somewhere else in Scripture. Right? Does this same expression or concept come up elsewhere that could provide a, a clue or contribute to understand, understanding what it is that we're reading? Could, could the expression or the concept have meaning that would have been known by the original audience that may not be obvious to us at first glance? And that's precisely what we find here in this expression. You see, if you go back to the Old Testament, we see that one way that God reveals himself to his people is by passing by them. For example, Exodus 33, 18 to 23. Moses uh, says to God, show me your glory, right? That's a bold ask. Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory, what, passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Or in 1 Kings 19, 10 to 12, God says to Elijah, who's feeling very alone and afraid, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. You see, in the Old Testament, God passing by was not him avoiding his people. It was him presenting himself to his people. It was giving them a glimpse of his glory and assurance of his presence. And that is what Jesus is doing here. The very glory of God is present upon these waters. What was unseen is now seen. What was mysterious is now tangible. What needed to be veiled is unveiled in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? Commentator James Edwards notes about this. He says, when Jesus passes by the disciples on the lake, he does something differently from the revelation of God in the Old Testament. He intends to make the mysterious and enigmatic God of the Old Testament visible and palpable as it had not been and could not have been to former generations. The God of Israel, majestic and awesome, but unknowable face to face, is now passing by believers in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, walking on water to his disciples, is a revelation of the glory that he shares with the Father and the compassion that he extends to his followers. It is a divine epiphany to the in answer to their earlier bafflement when he calmed the previous storm. Who is this? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? As Jesus shows his disciples and as Mark articulates in his gospel, he is God. And just like God passed by Moses and proclaimed his name, I am, Jesus does the very same thing. 
Verse 50. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed in the boat with them and the wind died down. So the disciples are terrified and Jesus speaks the truth to them. He says, I am here. Or or better yet, I am is here. And you don't need to be afraid. What amazing words. And words that I think we need to let Jesus speak to us more frequently. Right? We live in a world where fear, it seems, is at an all-time high. I don't need to spell this out for anyone. But the scriptures tell us over and over again, do not be afraid. Scholars debate the exact number, but there are between 150 and 366 occurrences in the Bible of the phrase, fear not. It's one of the most frequently spoken commands in all of Scripture, but perhaps one of the least heeded ones. As Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. You want a reason not to fear? I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. This is what Jesus is saying to the disciples, and this is what Jesus is saying to us. May we listen to the words of Christ and let him, his presence, not fear, dictate how we navigate the storms we encounter. Right after he comes to them and declares who he is, the text says that Jesus gets into the boat with them. And church, let's not miss this. Look at the order here. Jesus joined them in the boat before he calmed the storm. He he entered into their predicament first, and then he addressed it. Jesus didn't do it just a drive-by miracle, right? Stop the wind and keep on walking. He didn't stop the storm from a distance and then his presence was felt because the storm was over. No, he came to them in their distress. He got into the boat with them even when the wind still howled. Friends, Jesus comes to us in our most difficult moments. He doesn't just grant requests from on high, disconnected from our reality, from our pain. Rather, he himself comes into our situations. And that is perhaps the greatest answer to prayer we could hope for. Jesus could have stopped the storm at any point, right? From the mountaintop, from the water as he passed by, or even prevented it before it happened in the first place. But what he did was better. He himself got into the boat, and his presence changed everything, right? His his take heart, or have courage, do not fear, wasn't based on the absence of the storm. Take heart, the storm has ended. Rather, it was based on the presence of God. Take heart, Jesus says, it is I. I am here. We can all take heart, no matter where we find ourselves, because he is with us. Our security, 
doesn't come because the storm is over. Our security comes because our Savior is with us in the storm. As the Lord spoke to his people in Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Let's pause there for a second. That implies there will be things to be afraid of. Do not be discouraged. Pause. That implies there will be things to be discouraged about. It implies hardship. But it says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. After Jesus had gotten into the boat, just as he had done earlier in Mark 4, 35 to 41, Jesus calmed the sea, displaying his authority over the natural world. Another event in this sequence of revelatory moments as Jesus does what only God can do. Right? This is what Mark is doing. So often when we come to texts like this, right, we look for ourselves. Where am I? Is this story about my faith? About my, about my, 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 my? No. Mark isn't writing about you. He's writing about Jesus. He's making the point over and over and over again that Jesus is God. And so he lets us know that he does this miraculous thing in calming the storm in this line of succession where he's going, only God can do that. This, only God can do that. This, only God can do that. Jesus is God. That's the point Mark is making. And this is one of those things. Only God can still the seas. Only God can stop the storms. But it's, it's funny because there's a sense in which at this part in the story, we almost shrug this part off. Right? Of course Jesus calmed the storm, right? We're, you know, we're like, it's just a wind. You know, a couple chapters ago, we read that he calmed like a big storm. This is just a wind. Of course he did that, right? We sort of expect this thing of Jesus. We get caught up in, wow, he was walking on water. And we, yeah, of course, right? Of course he calmed the storm. But let's not miss the reality that, that Jesus doesn't even speak this time. But he simply willed that the wind and waves stop, and they did. Can you imagine if you witnessed that today? Right? You walk outside after church, and there's a downpour, wind blowing the rain everywhere. It's the kind of wind that breaks people's umbrellas. Right? And, and you're, you're trying to time out your sprint to your car. Right? You get your keys out, and you're getting ready to go. And then Pastor Sean walks up behind you, gently closes his eyes, clenches his fists a little bit and mumbles something under his breath. And he turns to you and says, beautiful day out today, isn't it? As he walks towards his truck and as you watch him walk away, you notice the rain stop. The wind died down. The sun comes out from behind the clouds that are quickly dissipating. Right? Like, this is crazy. Can you imagine that? What would you do in that moment? Right? Imagine you knew someone who could control the weather, who could tell the weather what to do. Friends, if you know Jesus, you do know someone who can tell the weather what to do. Let's not miss how incredible, 
how miraculous, how impossible this act is, both in human history and its implications today. This man, Jesus, can do the impossible because this man, Jesus, is God. This is Mark's entire point. Now, here is where the story takes a little bit of a twist. And here is where I wish that we were studying Matthew or John's account of this text, which provide a nice, uh, much nicer ending to the story than Mark's does. Verse 51 and 52 says this. The disciples were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened? What a strange ending to this account. Verse 51 starts off well, right? It says, they were completely amazed, period, right? Done. That would be a great ending to this account. That would tie this up with a nice bow. Jesus did this awesome stuff. He, we know he's God. The disciples are amazed. End of story. But as we know, life isn't always tied up with a nice bow. And this is the historical account of what happened, so the text continues. They were completely amazed, it says, not because, notice this, not because of Jesus walking on the water or because he stilled the wind. They were amazed because they were still confused about what happened back on the shore with the thousands of people and all the food and the abrupt ending to it all in which Jesus looked to some of them like he was avoiding what God sent him to do to be the king that they were waiting for. Right here, it's confirmed that at least some of them didn't get it back there. They didn't understand why Jesus would just feed everyone and that was all he was doing. They, like the crowd, as we discussed last week, didn't realize that he came to be a shepherd and not a Roman conqueror. And as he proved not to be what they, maybe deep down, were hoping he'd be all along, their hearts were hardened to who he really was. Perhaps even questioning if they had hitched their cart to the right horse. Which is incredible if you think about it. Just recap in your minds. The last few days for the disciples. And particularly the apostles. They had been sent out by Jesus. Given his very power. They had witnessed God work miraculously through them. Then, what we read last week, they had just seen Jesus perform this incredible miracle of feeding thousands of people before their very eyes. Right? And, and who gathered the food? Who distributed it? Who collected it after? It was them. Right? They were the ones who not only had a front row seat in, in Jesus' work, but were on the team. They were his right-hand men, and yet their hearts were hardened. Which should serve as a bit of a warning to all of us. Pastor Alistair Begg notes, here is a reminder of how close you can be to the action and still have meager faith and a stony heart. Here is a warning of how close you can be to the unfolding story of who Jesus is. You can preach it, you can hear it, you can teach it, you can sing it, you can engage in it, and still find that your faith is meager and your heart is hard. Church, if the apostles can find their hearts hardening, 
so can we. If they can go from seeing with their own eyes what God can do to questioning if he was who they really thought he was, so can we. How quickly we can go from fans to flameouts in our faith if we're not careful to remember who Jesus is and if we don't put our trust in who he actually is over who we think he should be. This week, we celebrate Palm Sunday as we remember Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem where he was met with crowds of people calling him the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they said. But oh, how quickly things changed when Jesus didn't prove to be the conquering king that they expected. You see, in less than a week, a few days, in fact, the very same crowd who was all in on Jesus, laying their branches at his feet, would be the very ones shouting, perhaps even louder, crucify him. It doesn't take long, church, to forget. It doesn't take long to change our tune about Christ. It doesn't take much for our hearts to become hard towards him or soft to something else to replace Jesus with or to question him altogether. It doesn't take much of a wind to wonder if we've been abandoned. It doesn't take much to find ourselves in seasons of doubt. But here's the thing. That doesn't change the reality of who Jesus is. And that's why Mark is writing One commentator I was reading this week mused that it must have been a fairly quiet ride home. Right? The disciples still trying to connect the dots, perhaps feeling a little sheepish about their doubts and fears. But Jesus doesn't chastise them. He doesn't roll his eyes and berate them for their questions or confusion. He doesn't send them home and select new disciples or appoint new apostles. He doesn't hit pause on their journey so they can start over at square one. No. What happens? We read about it in verse 53 to 56. They get back to work. They continue the journey. They pick up where they left off, healing the sick and teaching the good news of the kingdom. Perhaps you have been going through a crisis of faith, wondering if God is who you thought he was. Or maybe you've walked away and are just coming back, maybe sheepishly after a time away from him, wondering what comes next. Well, what comes next is whatever God calls you to. You are not disqualified from moving forward, from serving him, from getting back to work. Because while we are blown back and forth by the wind and the waves, while we are inconsistent, unpredictable, and often unfaithful friends, Jesus is not. He comes to us and invites us, as he always has, to believe in him, to trust in him, and to choose this day, not yesterday, this day to follow him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.
God, help us to understand who you are, not to lose sight of the fact that you are God and that you can and do the impossible. God, we thank you that you are a God who can walk on water. You are a God who can calm the storms. And you are a God who does not give up on us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you when we don't understand, when we're confused, and even in the midst of the storm that makes it so hard to notice what you're up to. Help us in faith to trust in the God who is above it all to trust in the one who is I am. We pray these things in Jesus' name, the one who is himself, God. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.